scripture reading tonight is from John chapter 14, verses 15 through 27. Hear the words of Jesus as he promises that his Father will send the Holy Spirit. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you, you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And on that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, And you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And these words that you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while I am still with you, but the Advocate The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world does. So do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. It's always good to be back at uh, Second Home here at All Souls. Uh, I love your pastor and I've so appreciated walking the last quarter century with him. It's hard to believe that uh, he has stayed so young while I've gotten so old, but it's uh, good to see again and know so many of you as well. And I do thank God for the ministry of All Souls. I want to just complete that. Uh, you did read the text as I gave it. But uh, actually, I want to link in the final verses, uh, beginning with verse 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of the Lord. Uh, Why does Jesus speak these particular words? Why does he give this teaching at this particular moment on the ministry of the Holy Spirit to his people then and now? Jesus did not lecture Theologically, Paul didn't either, although a lot of people think he did. But 
they spoke occasionally, meaning they spoke to the occasion, they spoke to the context, they spoke into what they saw and knew what was happening in order to interpret and encourage or challenge and strengthen. And so think back for a moment of what's going on in this uh, unit uh, that this particular text is a part of. It runs really from uh, chapter 13, verse 1, through chapter 17, Jesus' great high priestly prayer. When John 13 opens, John tells us that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, loved them to the end. And then we have this incredible picture of Jesus doing for his disciples what no Jewish slave could ever be made to do because it was too demeaning. Wash feet. And Jesus does this for them. It appalls them. Peter even says, Lord, no, I can't let you do that. Jesus said, if I don't do this, you have no part of me. And when he resumed his place and put his robes back on, he said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me Lord and Master, and I am. This is what that means in my kingdom. This is what it looks like. It means not that you are like a ruler of the Gentiles lording it over them. It means that you are willing, by example, to pour yourself out in self-sacrificial love. Your life is not your own. And so as I've done this for you, I'm now entrusting this to you. And then in the midst of that chapter, that beautiful 13th chapter, Jesus says words where you can just hear the brakes screeching. He says, I will not be with you much longer, and where I am going, you cannot come at this time. Now, the disciples have followed Jesus into a dangerous place. They followed him into Jerusalem at a time when they know that the religious authorities are after him. They want to arrest him. They're hoping to get rid of him. And the disciples have only been willing to go into Jerusalem because they're going with Jesus. And now he's telling them that he's going to be delivered over to his enemies. He's going to be crucified, but not to worry. God will raise him up at the third day. They can hardly hear that. They don't want to believe it. And so they're still arguing over who's going to be the greatest. And now he tells them that he's leaving. And they're just thinking, what is going on? We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. We left because we thought that you were going to lead us to life, that you were going to bring justice and truth. You were going to overthrow oppression. And now you've brought us into this incredibly dangerous, life-threatening situation, and you tell us blithely over dinner that you're going to leave us. And where you're going, we can't go. What is this? Jesus' response begins with that beautiful new commandment in which he sets a new standard for love. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I've loved you. This is how people will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. No longer loving as you love yourself, the old commandment, but now using me as the measure of your love. And Peter says, Lord, why can't I go with you? I'll go with you wherever you're going, even to prison, even to death, I'll go with you. And Jesus says, Peter, before day dawns tomorrow, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. 
So that's the context. The disciples are sitting there shocked and staggered and increasingly terrified at the prospect before them. And then Peter says, I'll go with you. And Peter is told that he's going to turn on Jesus and deny him before the night is out. And that is the context for Jesus then saying, beginning of chapter 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He looks at them, they're terrified. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be terrified. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas, always the guy with great questions, Thomas says, and and he ended that, Jesus said, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas goes, "Uh, you haven't told us where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Philip says, and you can see Philip sitting there thinking, this is too theological, this is too late at night, you know, I'm trying to eat, and Jesus is scaring me to death. And Philip just looks up and says, just show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. That'll be enough. That's all we've ever wanted. That's the cry of our hearts. We want to know the living God. Would you show him to us? And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip, that you don't know who I am yet? Don't you know that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then he tells them, it is good for you that I'm going away because I'm entrusting my ministry to you and you will do greater things than I have done. Now that's the whole context for this text. And then he begins by saying, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will send you the paraclete, the parakletos, the one called alongside. So what I'd like for us to do tonight, thinking in that context, and it might touch some of your lives. You might not be terrified, but you might have things right now that are causing you fear and anxiety. And if not, believe me, word from an old man, those days will come. Uh, you know, all you have to do is have teenagers and uh, have them start driving. And uh, you know what real terror is. Uh, and it never stops. Then you have grandchildren. I want to underscore six things that Jesus tells us about the work of the Holy Spirit. And because I obviously can't keep you here all night, uh, I'm going to be brief on each of these six. But I want just to underscore them and suggest a direction of understanding and perhaps an application to who we are, where we are. And perhaps one of these or two of these will be fruitful meditation for you as we enter into this season of Pentecost. At the heart of what Jesus is saying is this. Everything that I have done for you can only be yours if you receive the Holy Spirit. There are three great festivals in the Christian church. There's Christmas. Everybody loves Christmas. There's Holy Week, culminating in the celebration of Easter. And then there's Pentecost. And the truth is that unless we have known the reality celebrated at Pentecost, 
Christmas, Holy Week, Easter's victory are only cultural activities for us because it is Pentecost alone, the gift of God's Holy Spirit that brings to us everything that Jesus came to do. And so he's now explaining that in six ways. First of all, as we've already said, he says, I will ask the Father and he will send the parakletos, literally one who is called alongside. In the translation read to us, it was advocate, I believe. My translation that I use, the English Standard Version, it is translated as helper. Uh, In the ancient world, there were really two meanings for it. One was a legal advocate, someone who was called alongside when you were in trouble and came and walked you through uh, your legal difficulties. Another meaning to it was simply one called alongside to help and comfort you in the midst of distress. And so the ESV keeps uh, a somewhat broader meaning by simply saying helper, the one who comes to our aid and helps us. One of the great tragedies that probably every one of us experiences, particularly in the times when we shouldn't, is that in times of real trouble, we can feel abandoned by God. We can feel his, as though he's distant, as though he's not hearing us, as though he's not really there in this moment when I need him. And yet the reality is, if you are God's child, as Jesus says here, the one who has been with you because he was indwelling Jesus will be in you. The Holy Spirit comes and baptizes us into Christ so that we are members of the body of Christ and he fills us, as we'll see this developed, so that just as Jesus said, Father, as I am in you and you are in me, so may they be in us, I in them, they in me. If you are a child of God, you have been caught up into the divine dance of the life of the Trinity. And so the helper is here. He's already here. We pray for more fullness. But the reality is, the gift has been given to those who have been born of the Spirit. And so you have divine help within you, if you understand that, especially you need to understand that, and I do, in those moments in life when we feel most abandoned. He is here. He is with me. He is in me. I remember saying to a a pastor friend of mine a few years ago, Uh, who was preaching so hard about not looking at ourselves but keeping our eyes on Jesus, I I finally said to him, Brother, let me ask you something. It sounds good what you're saying, but where do you think Jesus is? I mean, is he? Of course, he's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, but are we therefore not to think about ourselves, not to look at ourselves? Is that getting into works and performance and all that bad stuff? No. Paul ends 2 Corinthians by saying, let a man, let a woman, let one examine oneself to see whether he's in the faith. Or do you not know that Christ is in you if you do not fail to meet the test? Where is Christ in us? By his spirit, the helper's here. Now, you can work that out in your own life, but everything that flows from this depends on our understanding that the helper has come and he indwells his people. 
How does he help us? The first, well, really the second point is he says he will lead you into all truth. Do you ever wonder, how did these guys remember all this stuff when they were writing? I'm sure that John, who was there that night, was so overwhelmed and staggered, if you'd asked him an hour later, he couldn't have told you what Jesus said. But did you hear where Jesus said, when he comes, he will bring to your mind all the things that I've taught you. And of course, so much more, the implications of it. It is the Spirit of God who has brought us the Word of God through inspiration. But beyond that, the Spirit of God illumines the hearts and minds of the people of God when we prayerfully, thoughtfully study and meditate on the Scriptures. Eugene Peterson has a beautiful expression for this. He says, God wants to turn our eyes into ears. I remember years ago quoting that line in a service. And before I even got home, there was an email that had been sent by somebody saying, eyes into ears, wood, what are you talking about? I can't. Well, it's really a simple, beautiful concept. He means you're reading words on a page. And then suddenly you realize, I am being addressed. I am being spoken to by the living God. God is in this place speaking to me through his word. It is the spirit who leads us into truth and who opens the scriptures to us. And brothers and sisters, without going off on a tangent, the mark of a person who's filled with the spirit is not someone who's constantly coming with words from the Lord and someone who talks about the Holy Spirit. The one who is filled with the Spirit does not speak much of the Spirit because the Spirit bears witness to Jesus. He came to turn, as J.I. Packer said, the spotlight on Jesus. Just as Jesus said, when you've seen me, the spotlight is on the Father. The Spirit testifies to Jesus. Jesus testifies to the Father. And the words that God speaks to us, we always must test against this sure and certain word. And the child of God desires truth in the midst of a world that constantly lies to us. The supreme lie being that we are the masters of our own fate, that we are autonomous beings, that literally, as you know, means a law unto ourselves. Auto is uh, self, nomos law, self-law. I decide what's good for me. I decide what's bad for me. I've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I know what's good and bad. Meaning, it's not in the text. It's in what I bring to it. Truth, well, there's my truths. You can have your truths. The universe is equal opportunity. And yet the person filled with the Spirit knows that these lies must always be countered with the Word of God. Assure and certain word. Now, we may disagree on the interpretation, and we will in many areas, though hopefully not in the Apostles' Creed sort of consensual orthodoxy uh, that you all celebrate here, as I hope we do at Cedar Springs. But truth, do you have increasingly a passion to know what is true and a willingness to lay down your own views to conform to that truth to which you must be conformed, or you will be broken on it. Because it is the way of life. And any other way is the way of death and destruction. Then the Spirit makes 
two things of us. It is the Spirit who makes us God's children. Did you hear when Jesus said, he's sitting there, he's talking to these guys who are frightened, he says, I will not leave you orphaned. I will come to you. And he speaks of sending the Spirit. When you adopt a child, you can give that child all of your love, everything that you would give a child born naturally. It's a beautiful thing when you adopt and a picture of what God has done for us. There's one only begotten, and then there's all the rest of us who have been adopted by grace. And Paul in Romans 8 speaks of the spirit of adoption and says this is how we know that we're his children, when we cry, Abba, Father. Uh, That came home to me. We translate it Father, but that's not really what it means. Uh, The formal Father is Av, but Abba means Daddy. Years ago, my wife and I were in Ben Yehuda Square in Jerusalem at an outdoor cafe eating, and there was this beautiful little girl with her mom at the next table, and she was so alive and vibrant. Of course, I couldn't understand. She was speaking Hebrew. I couldn't understand anything she was saying. But I was watching her just thinking, she is just central casting, you know, Middle Eastern beauty. And all of a sudden, she looked up and jumped up and went, Abba! Abba, Abba, and went tearing through the tables like this. And I looked up in this big strapping Israeli uh, soldier, IDF fellow with his Uzi on his back, stood there with his face beaming. And as closer she got, he began to laugh. And he swept her up in his arms, and she showered kisses, and she kept crying, Abba, oh, Abba. And I thought, that's what Paul is talking about right there. He's saying the person in whom the Spirit of God dwells should come to have that kind of confidence that this great God, the only true God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one before whom one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that his Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord, to his honor and glory, this one is no longer one whom we must fear. He is one who invites us to run to him and be caught up in his arms and cry out, oh, Abba, Daddy, thank you for your love and your grace. But God is able to do what we can't do. The one thing that we cannot give a child that we adopt is our genes. If I adopt a child, I can't give him my bald head, my skinny legs, you know, my pot belly, all this. I'd probably be glad. But God, when he adopts us, by putting his spirit in us, gives us, as it were, his spiritual genes so that we begin to take on the family characteristics of our father and our elder brother. We are truly his children, no longer just adopted, but now born anew and made children of God. What do his children look like? The fourth thing. He tells us that he makes us holy. It's not until the middle of this passage that he speaks of the Spirit as the Holy Spirit. Why does he do that? Because he's reminding us of the character of God. A lot of people think that holiness is just one of God's attributes. But it isn't. We read that God is love, but not that he is love, love, love. That he is righteous but not that he's righteous, 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 but the Bible over and again speaks of him as holy, holy, holy. When Isaiah Isaiah sees 
into the throne room of God, what he sees are the seraphim covering their faces and crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. What does that mean? God's holiness is not one of his attributes. It is rather the perfection of all of his attributes. There are people whom we would say, that's a good woman, but she's not good as God is good. Her goodness is derived from him. He's not the best. He's the source of goodness. He's not the most loving being. He's not a being in in reality. He's the source of being. I am that I am. He's the source of all that is good and right and true and just. And that's summed up by calling him holy because it means the way in which God is different from all the rest of us. And so it's astonishing, or should be, that God in the Old Testament knew says to his people, you shall be holy for I am holy. We say, wait a minute, that's how you are different. So how can we in that way be different from what we are as humans? One way. Because the spirit who has come and is making us new is holy. And I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but brothers and sisters, if there's one thing that marks the American evangelical community today, it is a sheer and utter lack of holiness or much care for holiness. In fact, it's an embarrassment to many people. Don't get me into performance, brother. Don't get me looking at myself. Don't get me, don't give me law. I want grace. Holiness is not law. It is godliness. It is becoming like our Father. And the world needs desperately to see who God is. It needs desperately for a church that can increasingly say, even though not perfectly, nevertheless, when you see us, when you walk with us, you are beginning to taste and see and experience who God is. He makes us his children. He makes us holy. We're almost done, and I want to try when I reach the sixth to tie it together and show why this particular pattern. The fifth thing that he teaches us is that he brings us God's peace. Jesus says, peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He repeats that from the beginning of the chapter. The word that Jesus would have been using was not a neat equivalent to our word peace. Uh, Our word peace is lovely, but it's small, way too small. In fact, the Greek word that John had to use, arene, is about as small as our word. But Jesus wasn't speaking in Greek. He was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, and we know that the word that he would have used was shalom. And shalom is one of the most capacious words ever used by any people because it basically includes everything in salvation. It means being reconciled to God, reconciled to one another, even reconciled to those who were once our enemies. It means being reconciled to the cosmos around us, reconciled Within ourselves, it is being made whole and holy and other and different and set apart for God. Shalom, where your life has been marked by discord and by confusion and by alienation from people you once walked with, where you have enemies. 
He brings shalom. Was there ever a a political season in which God's people needed to be the people of shalom? There are an increasing number of evangelicals, young and old, who no longer want to be known as evangelicals. My friend Tim Keller is one. He said, I don't even want to be known as an evangelical anymore. And that's sad because that's a Bible word, euangelion, the good news, the gospel. Why? Because in our culture, evangelicals are identified with angry culture warriors who try to make everybody else live as a strict Christian, even though the people fighting for it usually don't. And the reality is, we are meant to be the people of peace. People should know that when we come in, lawsuits will be dropped. Charges will be set aside. Mean statements against those we oppose principally will not be the order of the day. And that while we will stand for principles that we believe in, we will do it in such a gracious way that those that would oppose us will realize that if they were ever in trouble, we would be the people that they'd want to come and get help from because they're sensing within us the helper. And finally, what ties all this together, and you may have noticed it as, I, as the text was being read to us, is that he brings us God's own self-sacrificial love. And it is marked in a way that is completely countercultural. I'm sure it was then, but it's really countercultural in the church today. Just listen to a few of these verses. It be, he begins in the first verse that we read, and he ends in the final verse talking about love, and it's the thread that goes through. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Oh, let's see, over in verse, uh, over in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them He it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The gospel is not what so many of us were taught. The gospel is not simply forgiveness of sin for those who pray a sinner's prayer. The gospel is not going forward and asking Jesus into your life. All of those things, forgiveness of sins, grace greater than all our sin, asking Christ to come and fill us, I'm not mocking any of that. I'm just saying I could could go out of this door and pay anybody in any of these bars, tell them I'll buy him a drink if he'll pray and ask Jesus into his heart. And he'll say, what do I say? Just the way that so many of us, when we were kids or were at hard points in our life, said, what must I do? Pray this prayer. Oh, this is great. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. I like this religion. And we've exacerbated it by saying, now you're a Christian. But if you really want to go on to the heavy stuff, we'll talk to you about that later. Jesus did never say that. Someone would come and say, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. Why? (laughs) You know, well, I've got to go bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. Wow, that's not nice. Jesus was seldom nice to seekers. And the reason was he loved people too much to lie to them, 
the old Puritan pastors had it right. When someone prayed and asked Christ to come and be their Lord and Savior, if they then turned and said, am I now a child of God? The old Puritan pastors would say, we'll see. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, that means you love me. John, in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, gives the three vital signs of a person who's been born on you. And the final sign is you love the Father. And this is love for the Father, that you keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. It's not a chore. It's not out of duty. But it is a response of love. And we've lied to people and said, you can live however you want, and it's okay. You'll be forgiven if you just keep asking for forgiveness. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, follow me. And when we follow him out of love, out of longing, out of a recognition that his ways lead to life, and any other way leads to destruction and death, then we're not legalists. We're not performing. We're not trying to act this way so that he'll love us. We are following him because he has loved us and given himself for us, and we trust him. Did you notice that he said, if you don't keep my commandments, you don't love me? And love, you see, is the sign of faith. The Bible talks about the obedience of faith, and it is the Spirit of God that brings us the love of God And the law is simply rightly understood an expression of God's love. We want to keep God's law because we love him, not because we fear him, not because we want brownie points, but because we actually now believe him. And say, if God says this is the design for life, this is a no-brainer. And when we don't follow him, it grieves us. Over Holy Week, my wife and youngest daughter who's back home with us, uh, told me that they were voting me off the island. Um, I, I had a terrible Holy Week and it was not very pleasant to be around Holy Week of all weeks. I made it a week of crucifixion for them. But I was apparently just being a grumpy old man. And when they told me that, it really troubled me. I mean, they said it with humor, but I realized These who are closest to me should most clearly be tasting and seeing the reality of the presence of Christ. And if those nearest to us are troubled by us, we have every right to say, Lord, have I yet met you? Have I yet been baptized with your spirit? Do I yet really know you? Am I speaking of a perfectionism? No. We're broken. We're sinners. We're limping along. But here's the key. We're limping in a totally new trajectory. Once we were going that way, and now we're going this way, following Jesus. And when we fall, we repent, we get up, and he gives us again fresh strength for the day. Do you love him? Do you love him? I'm not asking if when we're led in these lovely songs you get emotional. If you love him sometimes... Sometimes you should, but you won't always. But how do we know we love him? Jesus says it here. John says it in 1 John 5. 
We desire to please him. We desire his ways because his ways lead to life. If you have a good marriage, you don't try to please your spouse, you know, to get him to to take you on a nicer vacation or to get her to cook your favorite meal or whatever. You do it because this is the one you love and you desire this person's joy. And if you don't desire this person's joy, if you're a manipulator and you try to get your spouse to do what you want and to control your spouse, you know what? You don't love your spouse. You are still desperately, sickly in love with your own broken self. And Jesus says, do you love me? That's the mark. How do I know? You're following me. Not perfectly, but more and more and more. And in this season of Pentecost, I I just ask you this. How much are you willing for the Holy Spirit of God to change you and make you like Jesus? I'm asking myself this, not just you. He will make you and me as much like Jesus as we are willing for him to make us. He will fill us to the extent that we are willing to be filled by him. He will use us to the extent that we are willing to be used by him. Salvation is not this small little American church transaction of pray a prayer and now don't ever worry about your sins again. It's new life. It is God coming and making his home in you and in me. All things new. Old things passed away. Have you yet known that? That's the gift of Pentecost. And apart from that, none of the rest of it is yet really yours at all. This morning at Cedar Springs, we sang a song that really stirred my heart and was my prayer today, even as I left there. If I can remember the words, it's Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts long for, to be overwhelmed by your presence, Lord. Are you willing to be overwhelmed by the presence of the one who made you for himself and who wants to unleash you into the world so that others may know the life that he alone can give. We're going to go to the Lord's Supper. Let me simply invite you with these words and then step away as you come and lead us. If you are not yet trusting in Jesus Christ, I'm so glad that you're here. But the meal's not yet for you. I want sat right where you are. And I hope you keep coming back and coming to know this lovely congregation and live, listening Sunday by Sunday to the wise and probably much more compassionate and winsome teaching of the pastor of this church, Doug. And I hope that soon this meal will be yours. But this meal is only for those who are in Christ. To celebrate it before you're baptized into Christ would be like celebrating your anniversary before you get married. This is the anniversary meal of Christians. And if you are God's child, then I invite you to come, not because you're strong, but because you're weak. 
Not because you're good, but because you are in need of God's goodness and grace. Come because you love the Lord a little and long to love him more. Come because he loves you and gave himself for you.